Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. If you're still deciding on your spring break getaway, Amtrak's got just the ticket. You can visit cities from D.C. and Philly to New York and Boston, all while enjoying more sustainable travel. Amtrak produces up to 83% less carbon emissions than traveling by car or plane. And did we mention the extra legroom and comfy seats? Book early and save at Amtrak.com. Click or tap the banner. Emissions comparisons vary depending on route and locomotive type. Restrictions may apply. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. That was the voice of Edmund, police service deputy chief, uh, Devin LaForce. About the two police officers in Edmonton who um, were shot and killed. Constables Travis Jordan and uh, Brett Ryan. We're going to talk about the constables. We're going to talk about policing, the response and reaction of the policing community in Edmonton and Alberta and across this country of ours. And we're going to begin with Sergeant Curtis Hoople of the Edmonton Police Association. Sergeant Hoople, uh, deepest condolences to you and everyone in uh, the Edmonton Police Service and your association, province of Alberta, and everyone in the policing community. Thank you, Roy. Appreciate that. How do you and how do police officers absorb what has taken place, you know, two days after the event? How do you, how are you responding to what's, to what's happened? Uh, you know, I can give you from, uh, I guess, uh, a few perspectives, I guess, personally, you know, I'm trying to find those moments where I can reflect and uh, spend time with my family while I, you know, prepare what's uh, getting closer to the funeral and the time for us to uh, grieve. Um, how the members are responding, they're still out there, still doing their job that they're supposed to be doing. Um, but the members are being taken care of by all the resources that we have within the EPS, uh, which is reassuring because uh, we're going to need all hands on deck uh, for the next little while uh, because this, you know, nobody fathoms this. And to sit in this chair as the president um, it, uh, it causes a shockwave that uh, is going to impact thousands. You know, you think about, and I was talking to a friend about this uh, this morning, yeah. you think about the families of the police officers directly involved. And then you think about the, the, the more broad policing families and um, spouses and significant others seeing their, the person in their lives who is a member of the police service your police service or another police service in this country or beyond, seeing the person go to work, and, and today's very different to what um, a, a normal day might be. Sometimes it's difficult to find context for normal. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's, a, it's a different time. It's a difficult time. And I, I, in the conversation, I suggested that it would be extremely important to have public support, community support. You bet. Are you getting that? Oh yeah, that uh, the support uh, has been amazing. Um, we keep getting information of uh, the flood of people, um, you know, flowers, um, gifts, um, just you know, them wanting to share uh, this moment and provide some recognition of how much they uh, appreciate the job we do um, and the support for the two members and uh, the ultimate sacrifice they gave. Uh, plus for their families, uh, it's it it has it's been amazing. Um, so that uh, <laughs> that warms the heart. Yeah, I, I really believe that people, uh, in a very broad based sense, support police because we know what you do in our communities. You know what you provide. We know what you provide to our communities. Uh, domestic calls. This has been talked about a lot. Yep. And domestic calls, uh, domestic disturbance calls are the most unpredictable, aren't they? You know, like, it varies. Like, domestics are, but uh, traffic stops are just as unpredictable. Um, the the heightened awareness for our police officers of today is at levels that uh, are kind of unprecedented uh, here in Canada. Um, the safety of our members is always in question every time they start a shift. The training is incredible. Um, they're prepared for it. 
but nothing prepares you for what occurred a few days ago uh, for uh, Travis and Brett. So, but we understand that 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 is the possibility, Roy. That 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 is the moment where you know we may not come home. Um, but uh, the good thing is, is the public uh, was safe. The members did respond like they're trained to do, and uh, the members that came in to support uh, Brett and Travis did their job, secured the scene, so we could actually figure out what happened. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm just thinking about how difficult it must be for the officers who are first on the scene yeah, and then have to establish or begin to establish the series of events that led to their fellow officers losing their lives or having their lives taken away from them. Do you think, and this is a discussion point uh, we could have on the air with our callers, do you think that uh, that our society and our the way we live and uh, and our value systems have changed significantly over the last 10, 20 years, and that may impact how police officers are perceived? Or is that a, is that a largely empty argument? Yeah, you know, it's a, it is a good question, right? The, the reality is, is um, you know, the policing world or the first responder world is, is an entity of, upon itself. Um, so... We, we have seen an increase of gun violence. We have seen an increase of, uh, you know, addiction concerns. Um, we have seen a, an incredible increase of mental health-related issues. Um, the police try their best, and, you know, even our chief has even expressed this to the uh, citizens of Edmonton, but we can't do it all. So this is where the conversations that will occur after, because we need our time to really uh, understand what occurred. Mm-hmm. These are the conversations like people like myself in the positions I'm in need to have with, uh, you know, our city, our social agencies, our, you know, uh, pro- provincial authorities, uh, uh, people across the nation as to, okay, what is the best model that can work for what we're experiencing today. So, yeah. but that's, you know what, that's weeks after. We got to have time right now to mourn and grieve and embrace each other. And then uh, we'll figure that out after. Yes. I, I did read though, uh, earlier this morning that you have made suggestions in the past that when it comes to domestic calls, that yeah. a mental health professional should perhaps be going along with a police officer or police officers. Oh, Roy, look at this situation here. Two police officers armed, ready to go. Yeah. Uh, they're dead. Um, this is the this is that risk piece we've been trying to encourage uh, to, to our groups, that uh, this is what we face. Um, paramedics, fire, they do a dangerous job as well. Uh, but when there's any indication of, of, you know, these domestic type or these family disturbance or something that has some sense of violence, the police are the first to attend these type of calls. Uh, and this, this you know, tragic event that occurred displays right there why you have to have police to come in and secure first before we send in any civilian component because the risk is there. It's dangerous. Yeah. What can we do? What can uh, the people of this country do? I know you've said you have a lot of support from the people of, of Edmonton yeah. and Alberta, and I don't doubt that, but what can we, what can we generically do to... Um, to let police know how much we appreciate what you do. And uh, just as you're there for us, we're there for you. What can we do? Well, first, I'm going to say, like, you know, um, especially like 630 Chad and the media have been really, really good. This is this is going to help uh, where we can actually voice some of our thoughts and uh, on this on this matter. So this has been great. Uh, I, I've always encouraged to listen to all sides of the story. And that's, that's actually all I ask is uh, just have the moment to really debate and have that, you know, productive kind of conversation on whatever the issue is and let all parties come to the table and provide the perspective. I think our police officers feel like their voice isn't being heard that much anymore, even internally and externally out in the public. So that's what I ask is that if we can just actually take that moment to listen to all sides. And I actually think we can actually uh, do something here and uh, build on this tragedy. 
Yeah. We've had, uh, I think it was eight police officers in the last six months in this country yeah. have lost their lives. Yeah, and uh, horrible. that's intolerable. Absolutely intolerable. Yeah. Sergeant Hoople, thank you uh, so much uh, for joining thank us you. and uh, our thoughts and our condolences. I know I can speak for my listeners across the country are, are with you, with your Edmonton Police Service, with your with your colleagues on the police service. And uh, yes. yeah, we're, we're, our thoughts are with you. We care about Great. We care about you guys. And gals. Yeah, no, that's awesome. Thanks, Ray. We appreciate it, too. Thank you very much. All the best to you. Yeah, take care. You too. Sergeant Curtis Hoople of the Edmonton Police Association. Chris Hayden joins us, retired Edmonton Police Service Sergeant, 26 years, as an Edmonton police officer in numerous roles, including the Major Crimes Unit. Uh, Chris, thank you very much uh, for joining us. And uh, uh, let me start by asking you one of the questions I asked uh, Sergeant Hoople toward the end of our our interview, what can we do as 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 a society to mitigate against what is taking place? The numbers of police officers who are losing their lives, and that number has increased significantly and very in a very concerning manner. Well, I, the general public, boy, if I can speak on behalf of being a retired member but having worn the the uniform for a, a many number of years. Uh, the tragedy here in Edmonton with the two members that were murdered, um, and this is what I've heard time and time again from within the ranks, is once this funeral is over, the support that the EPS members in uniform for any agency across this country, simple wave, a simple thank you, means the world to them. That moral support for members in uniform is astronomical when you're out in the cars and working. For in regards to the general public and the criminal element and handguns and weapons and everything like that, that is too big a question to ever come up with an answer for. But it's just something that uh, we know the silence on the police's side. They know they we know that they want to help, um, but there's no simple answer to this sort. Of thing. Mm-hmm. Has policing generically become more dangerous over the last ten, fifteen, twenty plus years? Oh, completely. Um, on, when I was a, a, a patrol sergeant on the road, you'd maybe find a car, a gun in a vehicle once every two weeks. Now, the boys on the street are pulling weapons off the street every night. And they're dealing with fire, handguns. They're dealing with long barrel weapons. They're dealing with semiotic weapons, semiotic weapons. The issue is is officer safety. The training the Edmonton Police Service has is incredible when it comes to this sort of thing. And uh, safety is a priority one for the citizens of Edmonton and also our members. Just uh, wondering again, looking at some emails that I received over the last, particularly the last 24 hours, does the criminal code have to address directly violence toward police? I know when a police officer is killed, murdered, Mm -hmm. that it's a first degree charge, first degree murder charge. I understand that. There was a time, and uh, in my lifetime certainly, when if you murdered a police officer or a prison guard, you faced the potential of the death penalty. Um, The death penalty is no longer on our books in Canada, but does the criminal code have to take into consideration your two officers who lost their lives, whose lives were taken from them, and the other officers who lost their lives, whose lives were taken from them over the past months, and and in, in order to at least make the attempt to provide an additional layer of protection for the police officers who go out every day and every night to do their job. You know, you can make those amendments to the criminal code. It's what happens in court is the prior is the, the, the issue is that the crown can put together a solid case and it, it can fall apart by administrative error of some document not being filed. I have my own personal opinion in regards to the court system and how it has failed members time and time again. But that, again, this is my opinion, but uh, it's it, are people dealt with in the appropriate manner when they bring injury to a police officer in any way, shape, or form? No, not at all. And uh, it's one of the heralds, uh, hazards of the job is that if you think you're going to get justice, uh, nine times out of the ten, you won't. Yeah, I've heard police officers say that uh, when cases go to court, quite often they don't turn out the way they're expected. With, with all of the preparation that is done... As you just said, a technicality will see the case dismissed, and that that cannot that cannot create any sense of real confidence in the system among the officers, among the members. I'm going to go out on a limb and say this, Roy, is that uh, this 
malarkey of time served where you get you've only served a quarter of your sentence for what you've been sentenced in the court for time served for committing a criminal act and convicted of a criminal act i think that's a joke yeah i, I remember doing a, a program really not that long ago chris where um the individual who was being tried for a serious crime was being tried for this crime before his sentence for the previous crime had expired. So he was, he was still under prison sentence, but he'd been released on, I, I can't remember whether it was a one, one third or two thirds, but essentially uh, after two thirds sentence, you're supposed to be, uh, supposed to be let go unless yeah. there's a specific reason to hold you. So he was, he was out committing additional criminal acts, violent acts, and was being tried for such a criminal act while his initial sentence was still in effect. If we, let's even make this even more current. The OVP officer was killed with a stolen vehicle in Ontario, yes. where the guy was on parole, or no, on bail, released yeah. from a previous matter, out on the, and he's back out on the road and just continues, doesn't even blink an eye, and continues on with his criminal rampage. From a uniform, from an old copper's standpoint, what's the use? It's honestly comes down to what's the use. But our guys will get in the car, and our ladies, we have the car each and every day, and when that call comes in, they'll take it at 3 o'clock in the morning, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. The frontline officers are the backbone of any agency across this country, and they will do what they have to do, even though they've got terrible circumstances waiting for them. Well, our, our most sincere and deepest condolences to you, your, your fellow members, former members, retired members. And uh, I, I, I really believe that there is a greater sense of community and a greater sense of appreciation for police officers within the broad community. It just has to extend over a considerable period of time so that your officers are properly protected. Chris, thank you so much. I hope we can talk again. Uh, you know what, Roy, I'd like to. It's a great platform to get the message out there, and I'm not restricted because I'm retired, so I can just go off on tangents all day long. So. We'll, we'll talk again, for sure. Thank you, Roy. I appreciate the time. Thank you for your support and the Evans Police Service and all their members. Thank you for the time on your on your show today. Proof uh, is a program of the University of Toronto, which studies household food insecurity across Canada. And there'll be new statistics coming forward soon in a matter of weeks, I understand. But the statistics that are in place now are concerning, deeply concerning. And remember, think about this, what we'll be hearing in the next few weeks probably will inflate these numbers beyond what they are currently. We have a population of about 38 million people in this country, 5.8 million Canadians, 5.8 million, including 1.4 million children, were deemed food insecure, hungry, when the last set of stats was released. Professor Valerie Tarasek from the Department of Nutritional Sciences at the University of Toronto and lead investigator for Proof is back on the program with us. Professor Tarasek, thank you very much uh, for coming on the show. We last talked, I think, in October of last year. The number 5.8 million of Canadians being food insecure, 1.4 million children among them was, was staggering at the time. Before we get into these numbers a little more and what they, sig what they signify, the numbers that are coming out in a matter of weeks, do you expect them to be higher because of the inflation and the interest rates and what's been happening with food prices? I, I do. I, I, I'm not sure if I'm not sure how much change we'll see in the 5.8 million. But what I think will happen is we will see an increase in the number of people experiencing severe food insecurity. So, you know, of that 5.8 million, not everybody's experience is the same. Right. The thing that we're capturing in our measurement ranges from people worrying about running out of food through to compromises in quality, through to people really, you know, at times not eating because of a lack of money for food. I think it's that latter category where we're going to see um, increases for sure based on the rising prices that we've had. We're talking about 15, what, 15 to 18 percent of our national population. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a massive number for a country that is really, if you consider what we the size of our population and the agricultural potential of this country, we have everything it takes to at least feed our own population and, in fact, provide uh, significant support in feeding much of the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And yet here we are with, well, we might as well say 6 million people, 1.4 million of them children, being uh, food insecure. 
Who is this impacting most? Well, it's impacting them. Um, most, I mean, you, you're flagging the number of children. Yeah. Most of the people in that that number are, you know, either under the age of 18 or they're working aged adults. And um, there is no question that um, their health and well-being is compromised by the struggle to afford basic needs. And so, yeah, that's who I think it's affecting. The spinoff of that, because there's such a strong intersection between household food insecurity and health, the other um, part of this then is its impact on our healthcare system, because yeah. people who are food insecure, adults who are food insecure are way more likely to have been diagnosed with chronic diseases and to not be able to manage those conditions just because, I mean, they're struggling to make ends meet. They're, you know, they're not managing. Um, and so they're certainly not able to do the kinds of things that their doctors would be recommending to, you know, manage their diabetes or their um, the depression or what have you. So they're more likely to turn up in the healthcare system, which means that another implication, I mean, for sure, the worst implication is the lived experience of those people. But the other implication is that it, it is, a you know, an, a preventable drain on our healthcare budgets. You said the last time we spoke that income has a greater impact on food insecurity than food prices. I found that very interesting. Yeah. Can you uh, can you yes. remind us what the what the dynamic be behind that statement is? Well, at the end of the day, your ability to afford the food you need for yourself and your family is about how much money you've got in your wallet or your purse, right? And so and food is just part of a total household's expenditure. The biggest part would be taken up with um, expenses for shelter, right? Either rent or mortgage or perhaps um, also utility costs, uh, those kinds of things. So when somebody is food insecure, it's because there's an imbalance between their income and their, their cost of living writ large. It's not simply an imbalance in that small portion of the budget that goes to food. It's a bigger imbalance. So somebody who's who's unable to afford the food they need is also very likely to be struggling to pay their bills, pay their utility bills, telecommunications, uh, transportation, whatever other costs they have, prescription medications. So if we see a, an increase in food prices, like let's say, you know, I don't know, the price of a head of lettuce goes up as it has. Um, and so what's that going to do? Well, for somebody who's food insecure, you know, they're not going to buy lettuce. But they probably were buying lettuce before anyway. But, you know, small perturbations in the cost of food aren't enough to tip the balance. The bigger things that tip it are, you know, a job loss um, and uh, an increase in um, the child benefit or income assistance programs, things like that. The big, you know, the big drivers are things that um, create either income shocks or the additions of incomes of like we're talking thousands of dollars, whereas typically the um, issues related to food price, they would be, you know, cents or maybe a couple of loonies or something. So the, the we, we identify people as food insecure through the lens of food, because asking somebody if they can afford the food they need is a very good way to identify people that are struggling to make ends meet. Yeah. But they really are struggling to make ends meet across the spectrum. And that's where food prices are just one bit in this bigger bigger picture. When we're talking six million people, essentially, that's more than the population of a number of provinces in this country. The yeah. entire yeah, population yeah. of the of these provinces is, is less than six million people. And and I should flag for you, that has to be an underestimate because that almost six million doesn't include people living in the territories and it doesn't include people living on First Nations reserves or First Nations communities. So those are small populations, but they're very, very likely to be food insecure. The risk of food insecurity is typically, especially like in Nunavut, it's much higher than it is in, you know, in, in the 10 provinces. So even, and, oh, okay, the other group that's being left out of these headcounts right now are people who are without an, a fixed address. So people, you know, people on the street, people who are homeless, again, a group that would be probably universally food insecure. So it was six million, you say it like it's a it's a huge number and it's the size of, you know, some provinces are larger, but it's also probably a conservative estimate of the true extent of the problem. Where do food banks fit into the equation? Well, they are the public face of the problem. There's no question, right? The... Um, We've had food banks since, uh, I think the first one appeared in Edmonton in 1981. 
So, you know, and they're very public. They, they're, they're um, issuing reports often, especially in large centers like Toronto, we're getting, you know, periodic reports from Daily Bread Food Bank telling us their numbers of people seeking assistance are rising dramatically. Um, we also are constantly seeing appeals for donations. So in that sense, food banks, both in Toronto area, but across the, the country, they keep the problem alive and, you know, kind of we can see it. But in terms of the response, it's a bit complicated because when we look at the number of people using food banks, it is generally a very small fraction of the number of people who are food insecure in the community. When we take, for example, that 6 million statistic, if we contrast that to the number of people who were reported to be, um, or the number of visits to food banks in that same year, it might be four or five times higher. So for every visit to a food bank, there'd be four or five other people in the community that didn't visit, but were also food insecure. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it, 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 it food, food banks are a very powerful public face of the problem, but they are really a very small part of the, of the response because they see only a small fraction of the people that are struggling. And there is no indication that simply by giving people, um, you know, occasional bits of food charity, that you change the underlying drivers of their food insecurity. So, you know, people come back the next week or the next month and, you know, they're still struggling because, you know, their job doesn't pay them enough. They haven't been able to get enough hours. They're on a welfare program that by design isn't enough to cover basic costs. You know, like those things haven't been altered by the act of somebody receiving charitable food assistance. It's shameful, really, that so many people in this country, and I understand the term food insecurity, I get it, but I would change that to hungry and, and going without food. And you, you, you talked at the beginning of our conversation, Professor, about people just not eating because they can't afford it. Or maybe they're spending uh, their money, their, their disposable food budget on, on their kids or uh, on their parents. The, the money just isn't there. There are things that we should be able to do and we should be doing in order to yeah. lower this number, to decrease the the number. Yeah. So this is absolutely shocking. I'm sure that there are people in listening to this program right now who find themselves being talked about. We're talking about the people, the people who are listening to us right now are experiencing exactly what we're talking about. Not everybody, but probably significant numbers of people have gone hungry in, uh, in recent days, weeks, months. And are yeah. concerned and maybe very much afraid of what's just down the road. Professor Tarasuk, let's come back to the 6 million number, 1.4 million Canadians, kids, out of that 6 million. And you're expecting those numbers to climb in the, in the weeks to come. What can we do? What should we be doing? What must we do to mitigate against this situation? Because it's, it has to be alarming I know, look, I, I've shared with you and I've shared with our, with our listeners in the past that I lived homeless at 14 years of age. There were times we opened the fridge and there was nothing in it. Quite often, there was nothing in it. I would go to restaurants and ask them if there was any food left at the end of the day. Could I come back and would they package it for me so my mother and I would have something to eat? That was my reality. So I know what it's like to not be able to put any food on your plate because there's just none available. What can we do to mitigate against these circumstances that exist in 2023? Well, I think we have to prevent people from getting in the situation of you and your mother. And so that's about saying, okay, where was the income coming from at that time? And how come it was so woefully inadequate? Um, when we look at who it is that's food insecure in Canada, like, you know, this problem has been measured and monitored by Statistics Canada for several years now. And we know a lot about who's in that 5.8 million. Um, it is primarily people in two categories, people um, who are in the workforce, so families reliant on employment incomes that are insufficient to, you know, are, are unstable and insufficient to meet their needs over the long haul or it's people relying on publicly funded income support programs like welfare or the Ontario Disability Support Program, or um, something like EI, employment insurance, if someone is involuntarily unemployed. Um, through the um, earlier part of the pandemic, we had uh, CERB and CRB, the federal COVID benefits. Um, so 
we've got two groups. We've got people in the workforce, but still struggling to manage. And then we've got another group of people who are, for whatever reason, not in the workforce and receiving some kind of benefit, but that benefit not being enough. So what do we need to do to fix this problem? Well, we need to take a long, hard look at the component parts of those households' incomes and say what what can be fixed. Let's start with the what I think is the lowest hanging fruit in this picture, which is social assistance. A provincially administered program, so administered by the provinces and territories, it has been around in Canada for decades. It is known as the income support program of last resort. So where you turn to when all else fails, you have nothing else if you are, you know, and then you apply and it's not a simple um, process to apply. There's a lot of scrutiny of you and your assets and your circumstances to be sure that you truly have no other source of income. And then you qualify in Ontario for what's called Ontario Works. Or if you are considered unable to work, then you could qualify for the Ontario Disability Support Program. But Roy, what might surprise you is that for years, people have been looking at those incomes and comparing them to basic costs of living. So looking at the cost of a nutritious food basket, the average cost of rent for a, an apartment of you know appropriate size for the family that they're looking at, the money isn't enough. Um, so, you know, it, 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 we've got... Uh, people receiving those benefits, but over two thirds of them in Ontario are food insecure. Yeah, well, I, I have I have less than a minute. I can I can tell you this. My situation when I was fourteen was family related. Um, my father had died. Um, my mother and I were new to Canada, and uh, she couldn't work. And there was just so many factors against us. We were living homeless. We received what was then called. I'm not. A, I'm not ashamed to share this information with anybody. Uh, we received a what was called a welfare check in those days. Yes. There was seventy five dollars a month, and the rent was seventy three. You can't live on yeah. two dollars yeah. a month. Yeah. It's yeah. impossible. So this so, is why I did what I had to do, Professor Tarasuk. We literally are out of time. I've got ten seconds. Please go ahead. Just going to say, you've said it all, Roy. What we need to do is fix that problem, right? You know. Yes. Make those make those benefits enough that families are able to cover those very Take basic. Take care costs. of not them. talking luxury, right? No, we we're not. We're we're, we're sure talking about keeping people fed. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders, no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. We've all suffered post-traumatic stress disorder. The nightmares uh, continue. Just thinking that George Lovey is back on the streets and virtually controlling his own cards is absolutely ridiculous. I mean... Not even to the point, point right now where he hasn't even got an, an ankle bracelet. Don Edwards, uh, who played for Team Canada, played for the Calgary Flames and uh, the Leafs. And uh, the Edwards family is still struggling with the fact that uh, Don's parents were murdered by George Lovey, who received a, uh, actually two first-degree murder convictions, and spent 20-plus years in prison. But now Lovey, as Don was telling us, and I've known the Edwards family since the terrible days their parents were murdered. Uh, Lovey is now residing in his own apartment four days a week. The uh, parole board has decided that uh, that is appropriate. They are, according to uh, Don and the Edwards family, very concerned that Lovey will be getting full parole, and he has threatened the Edwards family since his conviction. So we look at the justice system in this country, and it is under investigation again. And the kind of investigation I think is going, that's going to develop that we saw in the 90s, Scott New York has been on this program the last couple of weeks, former Crown Attorney in Alberta, and former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. And we've talked to Scott about 
uh, where the justice system is going and what the popular interest is now, the populist interest. Well, we have uh, Dellen Millard and Mark Smitch. You know those names, I'm sure, over the last couple of weeks and from a few years ago. They are appealing their murder convictions, and questions are simultaneously being asked about whether there should be parole for convicted murderers. There are people who actually believe it never happens, that there is never going to be parole for convicted murderers. Well, there is parole for convicted murderers. It happens not that infrequently. However, however, what if, and this is a legitimate what if, what if you're convicted of a crime you did not commit? And what if that crime is murder? And I've heard people say, and I've had conversations with friends over the last few weeks, I've heard people say there should never be an opportunity for somebody who's found guilty of murder to appeal their sentence. There should never be an opportunity for them to be paroled, let alone freed. Well, my next guest would still be in prison for a murder he did not commit. Ron Dalton is the president of Innocence Canada. He served 12 years in prison, convicted of murdering his wife. He was innocent and released on appeal. Ron Dalton joins us on the Roy Green Show. How are you, Ron? Afternoon, Roy. Good afternoon to your listeners as well. When you hear that uh, no one who's convicted of murder should be granted the opportunity at an appeal, that no one who's convicted of murder should be allowed out of prison at any time, that must make your blood run cold. It does. Uh, it, generally, it's coming from people who don't understand the system very well. Uh, the fact of the matter is that if someone is legitimately convicted of murder, then that conviction will stand up to appeal. There's, there should be no downside to having it strenuously appealed, and sometimes at a couple of levels. Uh, I'm co-president of Innocence Canada these days. We work on cases when the courts are done of them, when all the appeals have been exhausted. And I can tell you that we've had a number of cases in the last 30 years where the courts got it wrong on several levels. They got it wrong at the trial level, they've got it wrong on multiple appeals, and finally, when it came to us, we've spent years reinvestigating and finding new evidence. And we've had uh, uh, 30 cases where we've uh, either had convictions overturned or were close to that. We've had 25 of them overturned. And we've got another seven or eight in front of the federal minister at the moment. And it's not easy, uh, Ron, as you know better than just about everybody in this country. It's not easy to have your murder conviction heard on appeal. Uh, it's not easy to have it heard. It's, uh, it's very difficult to have it overturned. Mm -hmm. uh, you and I today enjoy the presumption of innocence. If we happen to get arrested and charged with a crime, we go into the court system presumed innocent. A convicted murderer, once they've been convicted, the onus is on them to prove their innocence. They're no longer presumed innocent. They're presumed guilty. And that's a much higher bar to, to clear. We don't like interfering with decisions, particularly when they've been made by juries. So it really takes overwhelming new evidence to show that mistakes were made to get a new trial, which is the most positive thing that can happen. And then uh, very often the, the Crown will decide they don't want to retry it. Now, you and I would, uh, would vehemently object, I'm sure, to Paul Bernardo receiving uh, an appeal uh, allow, being allowed to go to court. And uh, I'm, actually, I should speak for myself. I shouldn't speak for you. I would vehemently object to Paul Bernardo uh, appealing and having an appeal heard in court, having his prison, his, uh, his murder convictions um, heard in court. How do you feel about that? Uh, I, I kind of share your view of, of the Bernardo case, and there's other cases like it across the country. But I don't share your view of not having the, the entitlement to an appeal, because if you start making exceptions for the Paul Bernardos and for other notorious uh, cases of serial killers, uh, Robert Picton comes to mind. Uh, all of those people are entitled to try to appeal their sentence. And as I say, if, if the conviction, conviction is righteous, it will stand up to appeal. Mm-hmm. 
It's a visceral response. Of course it right? is. It's, it's just a visceral if response. Take, if you take that right away from Bernardo or Picton or other notorious cases, then you're opening the door to take it away from any of us. No, I understand myself, that. Myself included. Yeah, I understand that. And uh, I I know the French and Mahaffey families personally and uh, got to know them very well. Um, during the investigation, and I was the uh, national trustee for the Victims Assistance Fund for the families during the uh, Bernardo trial. Now, Ron, parole is being debated in this country with the Supreme Court of Canada having ruled concerning consecutive parole ineligibility instead of concurrent sentencing, allowing each murder conviction a parole hearing opportunity after 25 years. What are your thoughts on that? When, uh, is, 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 is it appropriate to say, look, you were convicted of two first-degree murders. We are going to make it incumbent on you to wait 50 years, so two times 25 years, in order to have a, um, an opportunity for a parole hearing, or do you think the Supreme Court did it correctly when they said we're, we would have these these uh, disqualifications changed and you'd be disqualified from a parole hearing for 25 years, and however many murders you commit, those ineligibilities would be uh, would be concurrent? There, there again is, is a danger if you say that all sentences have to run consecutively. That's, uh, that goes against the interests of justice. Uh, if you say that they should all run consecutively, it sounds like everyone after the first one is free. But the reality is that convicted murderers, either of second degree, as, as I was, or first degree, people with a minimum 25 years to serve before they can even apply for parole, uh, those are cases that are still serving life sentences. And people tend to think uh, that the public, if you don't know any better, will think that life means 20 or 25 years or whatever minimum term has been applied. But the reality is if you're serving a life sentence, you serve that until you die. The Correctional Service and the Parole Board have the authority to keep you behind bars for as long as, as they want. Uh, the fact that uh, uh, Mr. Burke up in Moncton had three life sentences with 75 year minimums, 25 stacked on top of each other, right. uh, had that reduced recently to a 25 year minimum, in no way means that he'll be released after 25 years. It simply means that he'll have the right to go to the parole board and ask them. For yeah. that. It's very unlikely that either he, Mr. Bernardo, Mr. Picton, some of the uh, more serious cases will ever be released on their minimum period of time they have to serve. And if they ever were, as same with everybody serving life sentences, they're conditionally released. Lifers are on parole for all of their days. They still are subject to supervision in the community they still have restrictions on their liberties, and they still have to abide by conditions. They're far from free. You've told me in the past that when you were serving time in prison, and you were in 12 years, right? Well, I served eight and a half years in prison, but it was over a 12-year period. I had a retrial after my appeal was successful, and I had been on bail for a year and a half uh, beforehand. So. So, so you told me, Ron, on several occasions that uh, you met individuals in prison you know were not guilty of the crimes they were convicted of. And, uh, and, and how often does that happen, do you think? Just, I don't know, just off the top of your head. It's a, I, it's a tough thing to get a handle on, Roy, yeah, because nobody think. really knows. Uh, the best studies that have been done have suggested between 4 and 8% of convictions may not be proper. Uh, I know in, in my case, when, when my own conviction was overturned, my retrial was over, I was finally free and, and exonerated. I knew there was people like me left behind, and, and I felt the uh, the tug at my heartstrings to keep involved in this process. I've been out for 25 years now. I don't have to be hanging around Innocence Canada or hanging around courts working on cases of people who are wrongly convicted. But I know that there's people like me that need the help. So I think if there's anything I can do to help them, that I will. Uh, Innocence Canada is not interested in freeing guilty people. We, we have the word innocence in our organizational name by design. We work for people who are innocent. And, and as you and I have discussed before, uh, sometimes in exonerating the innocent, we're actually able to identify the guilty. Yeah, you, you've done remarkable, remarkable work, and you do remarkable work at Innocence Canada. Whenever you and I talk, I talk about um, a mutual, uh, well, he was your friend. I got to know him 
quite well over the years, and that's David Milgard. And uh, it took David 23 years to be released after being convicted of a murder he did not commit. And the actual killer, uh, Ron, is, uh, again, you know better than I, was not hard to find. Police uh, had every reason to arrest, charge, and take to court Larry Fisher, who eventually, uh, after David was, was released, was convicted of the murder that uh, David spent 23 years in prison for, uh, completely did. innocent. Sorry, uh, David not only spent 23 years in prison, he was out on parole for another six years before we exonerated him using DNA. It was one of the first DNA cases in Canada. Yeah. We actually had to go to the UK to have the DNA tested, but the DNA testing excluded David and proved that it was Larry Fisher's DNA that was left at the crime scene. So it wasn't that difficult. It may have been more difficult 30 years prior, but a good thorough investigation even then would have uh, would have identified yeah. Larry Fisher. Yeah. And uh, and and David, after 15 years, um, Correctional Service Canada or the justice system, offered him an opportunity to uh, to be released if only he would uh, he would admit to having committed the murder. And his response was, "I didn't do it. I'm not going to confess to something I didn't do." And he spent another eight years before the process began to um, actively began to get him out. Ron, just remind us, please, if you would, of the journey you took over that uh, eight and a half years in prison, and then the time it took until the justice system uh, understood and accepted with forensic evidence that you were not guilty, that you were innocent, and and uh, I don't want to use the word set you free. That's, that seems sort of like a throwaway phrase. Provided justice where it had been absent for you. My own story goes back to 1988. We're, we're going back into the, the dark ages at this point. Uh, I was convicted in the, the following year, 1989, of second-degree murder, giving a life sentence with a 10-year minimum to serve. I spent eight and a half years in a maximum security prison trying to get my appeal heard in the Newfoundland uh, Court of Appeal. It took that long in, in those days because... Transcripts had to be prepared manually. You had to find somebody willing to work for legal aid rates, and, and it was a very slow process. Uh, once my conviction was overturned, a new trial was ordered. In the year 2000, I was finally acquitted. A dozen years after, I, I had been arrested and charged. Uh, and then we started the, a fight for compensation. I launched a civil suit that was interrupted for three years by a public inquiry looking into my case and, and two other cases, which resulted in some changes and improvements to the, the way the Court of Appeal in Newfoundland in particular operated. So these are the ways that reforms are made to the criminal justice system, is, is through appeal courts and public inquiries and lobbying. And then when all that was over, I decided that uh, I had to look around and try to find a way to give back. And that involved volunteering with Innocence Canada. And for the last... Uh, uh, 10 or 12 years now, I've been on their uh, uh, executive, and, and I've been one of the co-presidents for the last seven or eight years. Yeah, your story really really strikes a chord uh, with so many people. You were convicted of murdering your wife, but it was a case of uh, your wife having um, choked on a piece of hard breakfast cereal, and if the medical investigation had been handled properly, appropriately, by somebody with experience, you more than likely would never have found yourself um, um, or that's, put a bit of a good chance that's never part of, found that's, that's part of the problem we have in any small jurisdiction in this country. We don't have a lot of homicides, which is a good thing, but we don't develop a lot of expertise in handling them. Uh, in Newfoundland, back in the late 80s, we didn't have trained forensic pathologists. So we had some hospital lab pathologist doing an autopsy, thinking he had a crime where he didn't. Uh, it echoes what went on in the Charles Smith cases in Ontario, where we had a, a pediatric a pathologist doing forensic autopsies on babies and got a lot of them wrong. And once they're wrong, it, it brings us all full circle back to our discussion on appeals. So, yes. Uh, had had the, they got a second opinion in my case or the Charles Smith cases, uh, most of those would never have been prosecuted if they had checked with somebody who was qualified and board certified to look at the evidence. They, they would have known they didn't even have a crime on their hands, which which is why I think uh, anyone who's been convicted should still be entitled to have their case reviewed by a court of appeal. Reviewing, as I said before, reviewing a case uh, 
uh, is never going to do it any harm. If the case is a righteous case, if, if it deserved to be uh, someone found guilty, then the appeal will uphold that. But if there's holes in the case, then that should be brought to light, both for the sake of the wrongly convicted person and their family, but also for the uh, criminal justice system. None of us want murderers running around. If, if the wrong person has been convicted of murder, that means that a guilty party has been allowed to run free as the uh, uh, Larry Fisher was for 30 years while, while David Milgard served the sentence. You may not know where it is, but I doubt there's anyone in this country who's been paying even marginal attention to the news over the last number of years who hasn't heard of Roxham Road and knows what's going on there. It's the border crossing from the United States, actually upstate New York, into Canada, specifically Quebec, and uh, the border crossings from the U.S. into Canada at Roxham Road are increasing. So the question has begun, has become rather, is the federal government dropping the ball, allowing Roxham Road to remain a so-called irregular border entry into Canada? Richard Curlin joins us, immigration lawyer originally from Quebec, now living in British Columbia. I don't want to give away all his secrets has advised the Quebec government and the federal government on immigration matters. Later, we'll talk to Nino Colavecchio, political commentator in Quebec, former PQ candidate and radio talk show host in Montreal. They're both friends of mine. I have no idea why. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> how are you, Richard? Very good. Very good. Thanks. <laughs> now, you know where Roxham Road is. Yep. Been there uh, a lot. Uh, and it's a smart move on the part of Canada to shrug shoulders, point at the sky or the sea, and sort of declare, we're not really sure what's going on. It's a smart move because we centralize at one known location uh, that kind of entry to Canada. And why is it smart? If we do not do that, and we did not do that for several decades in the past, we play whack-a-mole. We've got to track down where people are coming in. We do not have the resources allocated to security screen people before they obtain illegal entry to Canada. By using Roxham, we have a one-stop shop. We have our law enforcement, our intelligence agencies focused laser-like on that one location. Every person, every person that walks through is monitored, screened, uh, subjected to biometric security systems and others, we know who's coming in. And um, if we did not have that Roxham single port, <laughs> we throw away the toys to our kingdom. Well, we, we do have the uh, the regular border crossings, you know, the ones that you drive through and... Uh, yeah, I, I've heard of those. You, you've, yeah. se you've seen those. The, it, it, it doesn't... Where, where, you hide, where, you, where you hide your stash under your raincoat on the back seat? Oh, yeah, a little travel tip, by the way, with the new technology, Canadians, uh, our border guys can hear what you're talking about in your car before you roll up. Oh, I'm so not surprised. Beware that. of that. I'm not but surprised. We cannot have those uh, same people appear at a quote unquote regular border crossing because their master plan of gaining access uh, to Canada to uh, file for uh, protection claims won't work. We got that United States safe third country agreement yeah. in place. I suspect that's on the table this coming week between President Biden oh, and so. our prime minister. So uh, as I understand it, and you would know better than I, as I understand it, if you cross into Canada using Roxham Road, and I don't know why there aren't more Roxham Roads in this country, maybe I'm just not aware of them. But if you cross into Canada from using Roxham Road, and you're from another part of the world, not the United States, but you come into Canada that way, you don't get the same government supports that you would receive if you were to use a more conventional refugee application. True? False? Well, it's, it's, uh, it's not that crystal clear. Uh, you just won't be able to make your refugee claim in Canada, period. If you go through that regular border, if you're subject to the United States-Canada Safe Third Country Agreement. So it's uh, all or nothing for the guys using Roxham, most of them. And so in terms of government support, um, you know, that first year is the expensive year. But Canada has invested, seriously invested in collecting data. What happens to these people five years, 10 years, 20 years? And again, looking cruelly at the bottom line, the wallet 
um, Canada makes money off these refugees. They end up paying more taxes than regular Canadians after a time and uh, succeed, outperform the Canadian-born. So, so, so make, 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 that, yeah. make that case for us. Uh, what do you mean they pay more taxes? Well, what they did um, way back in the 80s, uh, Canada got the idea, hey, let's spend money and start collecting data and data match the economic performance of refugee claimants. And so they managed over a couple decades to build a fantastic database that links the uh, refugee claimant with the social uh, insurance number slash CRA data and other provincial data. In other words, how much money are they taking out? How much money are they paying in? And they came up with the uh, <laughs> surprising, for some, uh, bottom line that uh, we're making money. And that's because if you think about it, it's not like the United States with a poor southern border. And we have a border. We also have a border because of uh, oceans on all sides and uh, one heck of uh, a, a cold zone if you're coming in from the north of Canada. And practically, that means our ports of entry, seriously, are airports or land borders only with airports mm, very tightly controlled. That leaves land borders. And it becomes the Darwinian mousetrap. To get into Canada, you got to defeat the mousetrap. And only the best and brightest are capable of doing that. But Richard, we, we, had, we, we had for years, we had, I think it was 40 odd thousand people who were in Canada and nobody knew where. CBSC didn't know where yeah. they were. The RCMP didn't know where they were. They had just disappeared off the face of the earth, as it were. They didn't, they didn't know whether these uh, people who had claimed refugee status were yeah. even still in Canada or not. And if they, if they surmised or knew they had left or, or couldn't find them, they often wrote it down as a successful case uh, uh, interdiction, <laughs> right? Can't find them, so we must have done it correctly. But you had thousands upon thousands of people. Authorities didn't know where they were. And yep. uh, they didn't show up for hearings, and yep. they just essentially disappeared off and, the face of the earth. And that is why, again, to reiterate, it is critically important to fingerprint, biometric screen, each individual on their initial entry. That way we're not, we know they're not uh, bad terrorists or, or people subject yeah, to international warrants, what have you. And if they disappear, exactly who is that? Uh, in the 40,000 arrest warrants that just went into inventory unprocessed over time, a lot of them, when you actually looked at who went missing, it, it, it's siblings. It's people who overstayed after one year. And, and it's not like USA. There's no large illegal employment underground in Canada. Yes, in the USA, no in Canada. And again, it boils down to climate. Don't tell me you can live illegally in, in a campsite minus 40 degrees Calgary between December and February. In the United States, their warmer climate allows people to survive with less. So are, are, you, are you saying, Mr. Curlin, that Roxham Road actually performs a service? It does. And I've advised governments provincially, federally, internationally to maintain uh, a single or maybe three at most entry points like Roxham. Politically, that's the problem. Practically, it works. Financially, gold star. Immigration integrity, we track people. And the most dangerous person is the person who gets into Canada without scrutiny. And we yeah, impose a people, curtain of scrutiny. People, who, people who are bent on breaking the law or maybe members mm -hmm. of terrorist organizations, they have ways of getting around many of our interdiction efforts. Yeah. They're not going to be necessarily uh, dependent on Roxham Road. Now, the, the, oh. I've, I've been very interested in this term irregular, um, <laughs> irregular, wasn't immigrants. And, yeah. and that's a term that was invented by Justin Trudeau. Uh, there's no such thing. The, there's there's yeah, no such official term. It. it doesn't exist. Uh, yeah, irregular. I, 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 you're either pregnant or you're not pregnant. Yeah, frankly. and, and either Trudeau's you follow invention. the rules or you don't follow the rules. And I don't know what this irregular thing is. The flow is regular. I can tell you that. Uh, and no matter how much money, no matter how much technology, you're going to throw at this uh, protect Canada at all costs from anyone entering illegally. Uh, we know since World War II. 
that we're always going to have 20, 30, 40,000 people managing to find their way into Canada uh, no matter what. And the Americans and don't so, the Americans don't object to Roxham Road. Well, I'd send Washington a bill and I hope our prime minister has the wherewithal to raise this with uh, President Biden, a good friend of Canada, because the Americans knowingly knowingly are allowing these people north in some situations. They're driving like, uh, them north from New York from City. New York City. There you go. They pay people to come to They Canada. bring the buses into New York City, <laughs> and then they take the, put the people who are refugee claimants from, you know, yeah. who've come into the United States, perhaps from the southern border, and made their way either their own way to New York, or they've been perhaps driven uh, to New York City on a bus for, by uh, through the auspices of Governor Abbott in Texas. Yep. And, and so they actually facilitate... Yeah, route and I get Roxham the business Road. case for that. It makes perfect okay. sense. Spend one, money one, on a bus ticket. Don't spend on the public support for these people. One final quick until, question for you. Until someone says, no, don't do it, or here's the bill for doing it, it's going to continue. Give me a 30-second answer here. What's the future for Roxham Road, and what's the future of Roxham Road in the era of the safe third country law? Wow. I think in 30 seconds, it's going to be how much are you willing to pay Quebec to absorb these people, Period. Because politically in this country, immigration has never been at a higher level of public support. Okay. Once Roxham Road, its benefits are explained, people will buy in. Richard Kurland, always good talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. So I don't know whether you agree or disagree with Mr. Kurland and his view of Roxham Road, but let's uh, find out how Nino Colavecchio feels about uh, Roxham Road and the Quebec position, political commentator, member of the Party Quebecois, radio talk show host in the city and good friend of mine. So Roxham Road, entry point into Quebec, which had the Quebec government and Premier Legault demanding that Justin Trudeau and the federal government disperse illegal entrance into Canada to provinces other than Quebec, and that's now underway. How are you, Nino? Oh, I'm well, Roy. How are you today? Great. Thank you for joining us. So we were just talking to Mr. Uh, Mr. Curlin, who used to be in Quebec, about uh, Roxham Road. How is Roxham Road viewed by the Quebec government? Well, the Quebec government, uh, you know, just as it looks at it as, as a point of entry, um, which is uh, causing a, causes us some form of grief in the sense that, you know, these people come in and it's fine. We're all very ready to welcome. On the other hand, it does pose some problems in terms of our ability, our ability to take care of them once they come in, and our ability to um, to accept such a large number of uh, of people. Right. Uh, the other thing is they come into the country, and they are the responsibility of the Canadian government, but we still have to provide services. So it does cause it does cause some grief uh, in that sense. I don't think Quebecers in any way. Uh, just like so many other Canadians, we are very sensitive to the plight of, uh, of refugees, and we want to welcome them as much as possible. Uh, but we think um, everybody should take their share. Yeah, and uh, it has to. There has to be some uh, some methodology behind any uh, any aspect of the, of the issue. Um, so, but Mr. Legault, the the Premier of Quebec, had a very strong message for Mr. Trudeau, and that was. Look, disperse um, refugees, claimants who are coming in through Roxham Road into the rest of the country. That's been happening. But now we have a story about French-speaking asylum seekers who've been transported from Quebec to other provinces like Ontario. They want to return to Quebec because they only speak French. Yeah. Well, which, which makes sense. The thing is, when you, when you let a situation like this go on for as long as this has, and and what's the the most the most ludicrous thing is they've actually set up entire installations <laughs> to receive these people at an illegal crossing point. Um, something nonsensical about that, right? Um, you know, there's 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 a you know warehouse looking operation there where they where people come through and they've set up uh, you know an entire an entire uh, how can I put it an entire it looks like a border crossing but it's an illegal border crossing. Yeah. So, in other words, how, how long do you keep something ludicrous like this going on? And and yes, we are again. You know, there's a, there's always uh, there are always people in the country who are willing to say, well, those Quebecers are intolerant again. That isn't the case at all. I think what what is happening is 
Um, it's an issue that needs to be addressed and needs to be addressed. It should have been addressed a year ago, two years ago, and it keeps keeps going. And at some point, it becomes an irritant. Yeah, I, I saw a story, and I, I'd like to credit um, where I where I saw the stories. I can't remember where where it was, but I saw a story a few days ago that it's almost become a bit of a cottage industry to uh, to bring people to Roxham Road. And, oh yes, right, and it it, be, it begins with the bus ride from New York City, with the New York New York City putting people on a bus to get them up to upstate New York. So, and, so this, yeah. yeah, and then from there it's a taxi ride to Roxham Road, and then it's walk across the border. It's become yeah, a exactly. cottage industry, and and, and it's a, no, a whole operation. People have 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 have, uh, have developed the services. The taxi drivers have used their taxi now. It'll, in a form of illegally because it's not their taxi. They they, they drive people uh, to Roxham Road. Uh, the the last steps from the bus stop uh, to the uh, to the actual location uh, to the actual uh, point of entry. Right? Um, trucks, vans. I mean, there's a whole operation. This has become a, become an industry in some way. Right? Or like you said so well. Nino, is Roxham Road? Does it have the potential to be a federal election issue? In Quebec, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't think so. It's um, it doesn't seem like the popul- you know, the average, the average Quebecer. I don't think is that much is as is uh, very much concerned about this um, because it's not, it's not an issue that, you know, you know how in this day and age, uh, Roy people care about exactly what affects them personally. Yeah, more and more. So it, I don't think it becomes very much an issue uh, on in a federal election. I wouldn't okay. think so. Let me change. Uh, but I do, I, on the other hand, it's it's a question of of uh, uh, you know it's optics, right? It doesn't make uh, Justin Trudeau look like a very decide decisive uh, leader or someone who can actually handle any issue. <laughs> what a surprise! Um, let me uh, let me change gears here for a moment. How is Mr. Trudeau and the China interference in federal election issues being assessed in Quebec and by Quebec nationalists like you? Yeah, well, you know, it's it's interesting how, uh, and we can't, you know, uh, I I would like I would like to be able to dump this on the liberals and say that's the way they operate, but somehow they're trying to to, to skirt. There's a whole issue here that was that we sort of put aside the fact that potentially uh, there were there were um, there was a, there was some kind some kind of uh, uh, interference in the last election and that Mr. Trudeau may have benefited from, right? We put that aside for a moment, but the fact the fact that he turns around and 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 you know uh, puts Mr. Johnston in charge of, of some of this of an inquiry, and then it turns out that there was a connection between between him, between Mr. Johnson and someone else in, that, that is involved in this. Um, just again, optics. How does Mr. Trudeau look in front of the electorate? Like there's always some gray zones, and he doesn't. He's never quite as clear as he should be. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's very true. And Mr. Johnston should have known better and said no when he was yeah. uh, asked to do this uh, this job. He should have said no. It's not appropriate. The optics are wrong. Yeah, exactly. So what happens is, you know, it's it sort of uh, it, it looks like um, uh, I would like to say it's a liberal way of doing things, but <laughs> I, other politicians have done it before from okay. other from other stripes. So. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.